0: Y'all turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37. We're going to start with verse 2. We're going to look at a lot of chapter 37. We're starting a new series today. Um, Philip Yancey is one of my favorite Christian authors, probably my favorite. I've read all of his books. I highly recommend him. He wrote a book many, many years ago called Where is God When It Hurts? About the problem of pain. Very common theological problem people have. He tells a story in the book about a friend of his named Claudia who at the time was a very young woman. She'd been married about a year when she was diagnosed with a very aggressive form of cancer. She was given 50% chance, 50% odds of surviving. This is a woman in her mid-20s who just got married. And they took her and they cut her open from armpit to navel and found as many tumors as they could. They hit her with treatments. This is years ago when treatment was even more invasive than it is now. And so this Beautiful young bride turned almost overnight into this wasted specimen of humanity, lost all her hair, couldn't eat, couldn't keep food down. At one point, she couldn't even swallow, and they had to suspend treatment for a while until she could do that again. But in the midst of all this pain and wondering why, members of her church would come to see her, which you would hope they would. But after a while, she started to wish they wouldn't. One of the deacons from her church came and told her, Well, I don't know why this is happening. Obviously, it is the judgment of God. You need to search your life and discover what sin have you not confessed. And then when you do that, perhaps you'll be spared. Another woman came from her church, a friend of hers, and when she heard what the deacon had said, she was horrified. She said he couldn't be more wrong. The God we believe in is not like that. Our God does not want his children to suffer, and so your healing is there for you if you will just muster up enough faith to believe you can claim that healing. It's all on you. Another woman thought it was her job to be Claudia's personal cheerleader. She read scriptures about the mountains rejoicing and the trees of the field clapping their hands, and she sang happy little songs, and whenever Claudia would try to talk about how she was feeling, she would interrupt her and distract her, thinking, well, you don't need to talk about sad things. We need to talk about happy things. And finally, her pastor showed up. Now, the pastor, of course, would know what to say, right? The pastor said, Claudia... You should feel honored that God has chosen you for such a difficult task. You're like an elite spiritual athlete and God has chosen you for the hardest event in the Olympics. This is your race. Now run it with all that you've got. But she didn't want a race. She wanted healing. Now thank God, literally, thank God Claudia did survive cancer. But she didn't walk away from that with any special understanding of why God did what he did, or allowed what he allowed. Why had this happened to her? That's a question many of us struggle with. And the interesting thing about today is today... A lot of Christians, especially younger Christians, think that doctrine doesn't matter that much. That we don't need to sit and talk about what the Bible teaches and how we, what we need to believe. What's more important is what we do than what we believe, right? You know, what you believe is sort of a private thing and you can interpret the Scripture however you want to as long as you do the right thing. And I will say there's a couple of positive things about that idea. One is, I must admit, my children's generation, the millennial generation, they are much more action-oriented than, than my generation was, and so they're not content to just sit in a Bible study. They want to go and do things. They want to make a difference in the world. They, I'll tell you this, if you want to reach a, a young person for Christ, our church had better be known for doing things, not just teaching things, and that's good. Another, another good thing about this, this shift in our culture is that uh, there are people young Christians today are a lot less likely to be concerned about the differences between Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, Pentecostal. It's not that those differences don't matter, but in past years we've, we've let them divide us. And young Christians say, hey, we're on the same team. We worship the same God. Let's serve Christ together. That's a good thing. But our theology... What we believe about God is the most important thing about us. There is one God. You can't decide who God is. God is God. And to discover who he is is the most important journey of your life. It matters what you believe about God more than, more than anything else. And so we're starting a series today called Where Is God? We're, we're talking about what God is about, who God is, and how he responds in different situations in our lives. And we're doing it through the life of a guy named Joseph. Now, many of us know the story of Joseph. This isn't the Joseph who was the father of Jesus, but Joseph from the Old Testament. A lot of us are real familiar with this story. If I do my job, hopefully you'll hear this story in a new way and it'll become interesting to you, even though you've heard it since you were a child. If you've never heard this story before, Hollywood couldn't write a better story. This is a fantastic story, but the point is not the story. The point is, what is God doing? How do we counsel people who are struggling? How do we counsel people who, like Claudia, wonder, why has God allowed this? Or why is God doing this to me? What do we say to them? Now, let me give you a little background on Joseph before we get into the Word. Joseph was the son of a man named Jacob, one of 12 sons, 13 children in all, and There was a time when every Jew alive could have traced his lineage to one of those 12 sons of Jacob. They were considered the patriarchs of the nation. And yet, they were a highly dysfunctional family. I find it ironic that so many people including Christians, think, well, I I, I can't really be fully accepted in church because my family's messed up, because I've been divorced, because I bore a child out of wedlock, because I've got a, a grandson who's gay, because I've got a daughter who dresses all in black and won't talk to me, because my husband's an alcoholic. And so we say, well, I need to sort of, if I do go to church, just sort of stay in the background. And if you're like that, if you, if you think that your family's unusual, you look around at all these beautiful, well-dressed families and think, hey, they've got it all together, I've got news for you, okay? Now, I'm new here. I don't know everything about every family yet, uh, but I've been in church long enough to know there's no perfect families in this room. Every single family in this room, I guarantee you, is struggling in some way. In fact, and I don't know this, I'm not the Holy Spirit, but I would bet money there are numerous families in this room that fought before they came here this morning. (laughs) Said ugly things to each other and got all red in the face and fine, we're just going to church. So you are in good company if your family struggles. And I'll go further than that. There are numerous families whose stories are depicted in the scriptures. Every single one of those families had struggles. In fact, most of those families had struggles that would make your family struggles look like a cakewalk. And no family is that more true of than the family that Joseph grew up in. Let me just share this with you for a moment. Joseph's dad was named Jacob. Jacob fell in love as a young man with a very beautiful girl named Rachel. Rachel's dad, Laban, was a tricky guy and deceived Joseph into marrying Rachel's sister. Joseph literally didn't realize who he'd married until he woke up the next day. And there next to him was not his beautiful intended bride, Rachel, but her less attractive sister, Leah, And he was furious. And instead of doing the honorable moral thing and saying, okay, this is who I'm married to. I'm going to love her. I'm going to expect God to teach me to see her through his eyes and bless our relationship. No, he went ahead and married Rachel anyway. So he had two wives, sisters who were against each other, who were rivals. And because in that culture, the only currency a woman had to validate herself was to bear children, these two women... Not only tried to bear as many children as possible, but also gave their handmaidens to Jacob as childbearing partners. And so by the time Joseph comes along, you've got 13 children by four different mothers, two of whom aren't married to the dad. Today they'd make a reality show out of that. But for Joseph, this was reality and it was no fun, it was not entertaining. And it all started to really unravel when he turned 17. Joseph's uh, brothers were out tending sheep. They were miles and miles away. The father, Jacob, sent him out to find them. Now, let's pick up the story with verse 2. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now if you have a King James Bible, it says that Jacob gave Joseph a coat of many colors. We don't really know what that looked like. We probably got it pictured in our minds. The actual Hebrew term that's used here is very obscure. What we do know is this, in that time, people wore very plain clothing. Everybody wore basically a tunic. It was one size fits all. It was this long one-piece garment. It was about as ornamental as a plain white t-shirt. It was functional. But if you were wealthy enough, you could afford something to wear over your tunic that would show status. It would show, okay, I'm, I'm more attractive than you. I'm more well-dressed than you because I've got more money than you. And that's what Jacob gave to his son Joseph, but not to the other boys. It's like he bought their clothes at Walmart, but he went to Brooks Brothers for Joseph. And how do you think that made the brothers feel? Well, they hated him. And I must say, although Joseph's the good guy in the story, he's the protagonist, Joseph did not help himself. He started having these recurring dreams in which his brothers and his mom and dad would bow down before him. And it happened over and over again in various forms until he knew it was a vision from God. And either he was too prideful or too immature to understand what to do in that situation, but he did the worst possible thing. He told his brothers about his dreams. Hey, guess what, guys? God says someday you'll bow down before me. I know you hate me now. But someday, you're going to bow down before me. Isn't that great? You just want to say, kid, what are you thinking? And so, and so on the day when Joseph goes to visit his brothers and to give a report on them about, to their dad about where they are, they see him coming from a mile away, literally, and devise a plan. Look with me at verse 19. Here comes that dreamer. They said to each other, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, this is one of Joseph's brothers, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming up from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, this is another one of Joseph's brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. And next week we're going to listen to a story or we're going to look at a story about Judah himself. But keep that in mind. Now verse 29 says... Or so when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. And let's just stop there. Um, what ends up happening is he sell, they sell Joseph in to slavery to these Midianites. They take him to Egypt where he is sold to Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard. They sold him for 20 shekels of silver. Now, scholars tell us that's about eight ounces, which in that time was a lot of money. It was about three years' wages for the average shepherd, but still, it's half a pound of silver. Bad enough to be sold into slavery, bad enough to be sold by your own brothers into slavery, but to be sold by your brothers into slavery for half a pound of silver, that had to be bitter. That had to be difficult for Joseph. And he had to wonder, where's God in all of this? What happened to all these dreams? Surely this was him sending them. Was was he just making fun of me? Was he just setting me up for failure? Where is God in all of this? So let's take a moment before we close. Let's, Let's talk about what do we know about pain? What do the scriptures tell us about what it is to be in pain? Where pain comes from? Why we experience difficult times? Three things that we know from the scriptures. Number one. We know from the scriptures that sometimes we bring pain upon ourselves. Sometimes our pain is totally self-inflicted. We can draw a straight line from the action we did and its consequence that we're reaping. And the Bible talks about this. The law of Moses is full of information about if you do this, this is going to be the result. I'm warning you ahead of time, don't do it. Book of Proverbs is the most practical book in the entire Bible, you ever read Proverbs? It is, it is common sense from start to beginning, start to finish, although it isn 't really all that common for us and so it will say things like, If you are lazy you 're going to be poor. if you don 't listen to the advice of your elders you 're going to make bad decisions they 've lived there before you don 't know better than them they 've done things that you've already done, listen to their counsel. If you chase after another man's wife, you're gonna get your tail kicked. It's gonna happen. There are consequences to foolish actions. If you talk too much, you'll end up saying the wrong thing and so forth. You can draw a direct line from your actions to the consequences. I'll tell you another one in the scriptures that most of us don't like, but is still just as true. First Timothy says that if you want to get rich, it's going to end up destroying you. Now, that's, that's not what we're told in American history. The American dream tells us something different. But, yeah, the Bible says if your main desire is to get rich, you're going to be destroyed. You're going to end up, even if you get everything you wanted, you're going to be unhappy and you're going to hurt other people and it's going to be a bad thing. You can draw direct lines from, from your greed to the consequence. Now, is there forgiveness? Absolutely. The Bible tells us over and over again that God forgives freely to everyone who comes to him in repentance, but we still bear consequences. If I get drunk and run, into, run my car into a light pole, the next day I may be truly repentant. My car is still wrecked. You see, there are consequences. And so sometimes if we're honest and humble, we can say instead of, oh, God, why did you do this to me? We can say, okay, God didn't have anything to do with this. I did this to myself. Other times, the second thing we know about suffering is sometimes God does cause human suffering and it's meant as a punishment. It's meant as discipline. We know from the scriptures that sometimes God intervenes. It's sort of like a negative miracle. God just breaks into human culture and human activity and does something to us to discipline us, to wake us up, to get our attention, to force us to confront our sin. And we see this over and over again in the scriptures, mostly in God's dealings with the nation of Israel. The best example is what we talked about last week. When God allowed his people, the nation of Israel, who had inhabited that land he had promised Abraham for centuries, he allowed them to be conquered and carried off into exile for 70 years. And here's the thing, when God did that to the Israelites, did they know what was happening? Did they know why it was happening? Absolutely. If you read the Old Testament, you see for decades before, Isaiah, Jeremiah, other prophets had been saying, here's what's going to happen unless you turn things around. Here's what's going to happen unless you forsake your false gods, and then it happened. And I guarantee you, there wasn't a single Jew who was being carried off to Babylon who said, "Lord, why is this happening?" They knew. And that's the thing. As we as Christians, we should never say to anyone else, "Well, I, I guess this is God's judgment on you. You better ask him why this is happening." In the Bible, whenever God directly punishes someone, they know. They don't have to guess. Now, are there times in the Bible where David, for instance, or Job, say, Lord, I don't know why this is happening to me? Absolutely. But it's not punishment in those cases. Whenever God punishes, he lets people know why. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, as parents, we don't just walk around randomly whacking our children and then running away and leaving them saying, what was that about? That's bad parenting. Now, maybe some of us as dads do that for fun, but it's not punishment, right? It's not discipline. God does not discipline us unless he lets us know why we're being disciplined. So again, don't ever say to someone, well, you need to search your heart and figure out why God's punishing you. If God was punishing them, they'd know it. And when the preacher stands up and says, for instance, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans because that's a sinful city and they're reaping the punishment of God, he doesn't have the scriptures on his side. Unless God spoke to him directly, he doesn't have the right to say that. Let God deal his punishment as he chooses. And let God communicate his discipline to those who are being disciplined. Don't assume you understand why someone is going through what they're going through because you don't unless God reveals it to you personally. And that's a heavy burden to bear. I wouldn't want it. Third thing we know about pain, our problems never take God by surprise. Our problems never surprise God. You see, most pain in our world and in our lives, it's not the direct consequence of bad things we do, and it's not a punishment from God. Most of the pain we experience is simply the result of living in a messed up world. God created a perfect world. Sin warped his world. We're living in the curse, and so we're going to experience pain. That's just life. But while it seems random to us, And unexpected when it hits. It's not unexpected to God. God sees it coming. Whatever bad thing happens to you or me, God sees it coming. And sometimes God chooses to work a miracle. Sometimes God intervenes and rescues us. Sometimes that means that we go to the doctor and after six months of treatment, he says, I don't understand. This this disease is not supposed to be gone, but it's gone. I can't explain this. And you say, well, it's God. And it is. You give him the glory. Sometimes you've lost your job and your money's dried up and you don't know what you're going to do and God moves someone to write you a check that covers all your bills. It's the exact amount you needed to cover everything. Sometimes the soldier in Afghanistan steps on an IED and against all the odds, it doesn't blow up. Sometimes the bad guy's breaking in and God rescues the helpless family. Nothing bad happens. God works miracles. He still does them. People in this room could stand up and give testimony to the miracles God works. But do they happen to us every day? Do they happen every time we experience something scary? No. That's why we call them miracles. God doesn't intervene often. Most of the time, he chooses to work through our pain instead of preventing our pain. You and I may wish it was different, but that's the way it is in this life. That's the way God chooses to act. God has a plan, no matter what happens. Well, let me read you a scripture, Genesis 15, Genesis fifteen, thirteen 13 through 14. This is decades before Joseph was even born. This is God speaking to Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham. And he says to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. So God is saying to Abraham, years from now, when you're long dead, your descendants are going to live in a distant land where they're going to become slaves, and I'm going to do some amazing things. They're going to be slaves 400 years, but I'm going to do amazing things through all of that. God knew ahead of time. See, Joseph is part of this grand plan. Joseph is the reason the people of God ended up in Egypt in the first place. And for 400 years, they were slaves. And then God sent a man named Moses. And Moses, through the power of God, led this fantastic deliverance. And they, they escaped across the desert and invaded the promised land. And against all the odds, won and conquered that land. This is a fantastic story in Exodus and Joshua But God knew all of that was coming. Joseph didn't. Joseph didn't know he was part of this huge plan that would involve thousands upon thousands of people and and through the word of God, millions and millions of people. He had no idea that God had a plan for all of this. If you would have asked Joseph in the middle of this circumstance when he was bound at the wrist, being dragged across the desert by these Midianite traders, if you would have gone to him right then and said, hey Joseph, where's your God now? My bunny says he would have said, I have no idea where God is. I still believe in him, but I don't know where he is and I don't know that he cares about me. He he must have forgotten about me. Joseph had no idea that right then God was at work. Not only was God using, and believe me, I don't think God intended for Joseph to be sold into slavery. That wasn't God's will. God doesn't ordain sin, but God knew it was going to happen. He allowed it, and he said, I'm going to work what the enemy means for evil into something fantastic. And so whereas the enemy meant to break up a family that was important to God, God used it to rescue that entire family, and through them thousands of other people from starvation. We'll get to that later. And then, even beyond that, to use the whole thing to make a nation, to give a nation identity, to teach a nation who their God was and what they were there to do. So the devil throws a punch at God, and God says, oh, really? Let me show you what I'll do with that. And really makes the devil pay. God has a plan. He works through our pain. So how, let's go back to the question we asked at the beginning. How do we counsel people whose lives don't make sense, who are asking, why is this happening to me? How do we give them counsel? There's a story in John chapter 9 where Jesus and his disciples are walking and they see a man who was born blind. The disciples don't know he was born blind. They just know here's this blind man sitting begging. They say, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, so that he was afflicted in this way? And Jesus' response is, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Here's the significant thing about that story: the disciples want everything wrapped up in a tight, in a a neat, tidy little bow, so they know, okay, we know whose fault it is that this man is blind. That way, we can just walk away and say everything's just. Jesus says it's none of your business. Don't don't waste your breath. Don't waste your time. Don't presume to be so arrogant. That you know why God has allowed this in his life or why it's happened. It's not your business. If I, if I wanted you to know why he was blind, I would tell you. All you need to know is what the enemy intends for, for bad, I'm going to turn it into good. This man is blind, God allowed it, because we're going to use it to do amazing things. And then, of course, Jesus healed him. But the point of the story is not the healing. The point is that Jesus looked at a man who everybody else judged and said, no, no, no. What the enemy meant for evil, I'm going to turn it into good. So when our friends are suffering, our job is not to defend God and say, okay, um, this is God's will, you just need to accept it. By the way, that's pretty much the worst thing you can say. Your job is not to try to interpret for them why this happened. Well, it's because you eat bacon cheeseburgers that you have heart trouble. That's not your job. It's not your job to say, obviously God is punishing you. You need to repent. Your job is to be there for them. Your job is to be the hands and the feet and the voice of Jesus, the presence of Christ in their lives. Your job is to ask yourself, if I were sitting in this person's shoes, what would I want my friend to do? Would I want my friend to mow my lawn because I don't have the energy because I'm going through cancer treatments to mow my own lawn? Would I want my friend to offer to watch my kids for me so I can have a few moments of peace? Would I want my friend to just sit in my presence and not talk? And listen and let me say things that are on my chest, things that might even sound kind of blasphemous, but not act in shock and judgment, but just sit there and let me talk and, and weep alongside me and, and at the end of it just put his arms around me or her arms around me and say, it's okay, I'm there for you. Yeah. When I was in my mid-20s and I was a pastor for the very first time, a pastor of the church I grew up in, Really bizarre to pastor the people who changed your diapers. But um, one night, we got a phone call right about sundown uh, that a man in our church had passed away. Late 50s, not an old man at all, had just died suddenly. His wife wasn't a member of our church. In fact, I, don't, I didn't know her. I'd known him all my life. I'd never met her. And one of the one of the problems with being the pastor of the church you grew up in is you got your mom telling you what to do. (laughs) My mom said, you know, Jeff, you need to go visit her. I'd never done anything like that before. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. I was terrified. Drove there in the dark to this house of a woman I didn't know whose husband had just died who didn't go to my church. Knocked on the door and said, I'm Jeff. I'm the pastor at Hope. I was Doug's pastor. I just wanted to come by and tell you we're praying for you. She invited me in. There were other people there. I, was, I felt so out of place. I felt so inadequate. I didn't know what to say to this woman. I called the minister of her church, made sure he knew. I said a prayer with her. I sat there for about 30 minutes and then I excused myself and went home. And I went home and said, well, I, I tried. You know, to this day when I see that woman, when I go back home and I see her, She says, you know, I'll never forget that you came the night that Doug died. I felt so inadequate, and yet God used me just showing up, just this empty-headed 25-year-old preacher boy, not knowing what to do, just the fact that I was there. Your friends aren't going to care what you have to say. They just want you to be there. Our call is to weep with those who weep, period, period. Not to judge them and, and say, well, you don't have a right to weep or I don't understand. Just, just weep with them. Just be there for them. That's how you counsel them. When my, wife's, when my wife was a little girl, she had, an older, she had three older sisters, but her next oldest sister's name is Bev. Um, Bev, one day when she was about 12, decided she was going to make supper for the family. She was going to make waffles. Anybody else here like breakfast for supper? I do. So she was going to make waffles for the family. Her mom had this tested waffle recipe. They'd made it over and over again. She pulled that recipe card down and went to work. When the family sat down to dinner, they took their waffles, they took their butter, they took their syrup, each one took a bite, each one pushed their plates away. Waffles were inedible. What had happened? Hadn't you followed the recipe? Yes, but they discovered what Bev had done is she had seen where it said two tablespoons of sugar, and she had thought, well, that must be a mistake. Waffles are sweet. That must mean two cups of sugar, right? (laughs) You know, when you're a child, there's no such thing as too much sugar. No such thing as too sweet. And a lot of us, a lot of us, if we would admit it, we would say, you know, I really think that if God was just, life would be a lot sweeter for me. I really think that if God was just, If he was fair, I wouldn't have all these problems. There can't be too much sweet, can there? Guess what? God knows the recipe. He knows what he's doing. If you're going through a trying time, he didn't necessarily cause it, but he allowed it. He's got a reason. He's got something he's going to accomplish through it. Our job is to trust him. And the reason we can trust him, that, those would be empty words if not for what I'm about to say. We can trust him because he came down and became a man. And he experienced the pain that we experience. In fact, he went further than that. He experienced the pain we deserve to experience ultimately. The pain that is waiting for us without redemption. He said, I'll take it now. And as he hung on the cross, bleeding and dying, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When you read that, you might think, well, even Jesus didn't understand. No, he was quoting Psalm 22. Go back and read Psalm 22 sometime. It's a prediction of the the crucifixion in detail. Jesus was saying, even this, even this, this supreme injustice, even this was part of the plan. Even this, this is part of the recipe for your redemption. And if he was willing to do that, can't we trust him? Can't we say to him today, Lord, what I'm going through now, what I may go through tomorrow, I may not like it, but I believe in you. Give me faith to trust you more.